nanomedicine. The nano refers to nanometer, one billionth of a meter. To get a feeling for the length scales, imagine that we're trying to treat a cancer patient and we expand her body such that when she lays down, her body spans halfway from Boston to New York. And what we're trying to do is to treat a tumor that's proportionally the size of a football field, composed of millions of cells. Each one of those is about a yard in diameter. And we're trying to kill this tumor by delivering cytotoxic, so drugs that will kill that tumor, in packages that are about the size of a thimble. And that those thimbles are woven from fine strands about the width of a human hair. That's DNA, the building material that we're using. So I'd like you to keep that in mind as a landmark. When I say 100 nanometers, what that means in your mind, it should be that thimble woven from strands of DNA, the width of a human hair, treating a cell that's about a yard in diameter. Now we know something about the length scale of nanomedicine. What should nanomedicine look like besides its shape, its size? And if you do an image search for nanomedicine, I do believe this is the first image that will pop up. Some of you might recognize this is Buckminster Fullerene inside something else that maybe is a magnified version. It's not supposed to be taken literally. It's just another metaphor that maybe taking conventional drugs or other things and then packing, packaging them into these uh, containers with a length scale on the order of 10 to 100 nanometers, that somehow this could be more effective in treating disease. If you scroll down the page of your image search, here's another provocative image that might show up. It looks like somebody's naive conception of a macroscopically engineered device just simply shrunken down to the size of a red blood cell. And uh, we might derisively imagine Raquel Welch jumping out of it, kind of like in Fantastic Voyage. Uh, those of you who know something about nanomedicine have never seen a nanomedicine that looks like this. We're used to thinking of things like liposomes and dendromers. They're these formless, spherical shapes that we don't really have much control over their shape. So of course we don't build nanomedicine like that. But then when we look at nature, we find that nature does build objects with exquisite control over shape. So even though people don't yet, nature does. This is an electron micrograph of the T4 bacteriophage. It's a virus that infects bacteria. It looks like a nanoscale lunar lander. And so it stores its genetic material in this icosahedral capsid. And its function is to dock onto the surface of the bacteria with these tail spikes and then use the, the built up pressure inside this capsid to inject its DNA into the bacterium. The capsid head has dimensions of about 100 nanometers. Again, that thimble that I mentioned before. Nature builds exquisite shapes on smaller length scales as well, of course. This is a famous one, stylistic rendition of the ribosome. This is the protein printer of the cell. And what it does is it takes an information tape encoded in this messenger RNA, and then it translates that into a series of amino acids to form a polypeptide protein that will then fold up into some particular 3D shape and it's that shape that gives it, its func it gives it this up, these things its, its function. Indeed, this is one of the big take-home messages for molecular biology of the last century, that for nature, control over molecular shape is really 
absolutely necessary in most cases in order to achieve the almost magical functions that living systems have on the molecular scale. Just to give you a couple more example, uh, one more example, this is on a, a larger length scale. So now this, this is 200 nanometers across this long flagella. So it's about 200 nanometers across, about 10 micrometers long. This is flagella of a single-celled algae called Chlamydomonas. It uses these, it spins them around in order to help, help it to swim. So again, the message here is that nature has this amazing control over shape that's important for function. And it's something that we as human beings haven't been able to harness thus far. And that raises the question, well, why haven't we done this so far? Why can't we just whip out our molecular 3D printer and print these things out as we like? Well, I think there's really two reasons why you haven't seen any scientists do this yet. One is we don't have such a 3D printer yet. You can't go down to Micro Center. They don't stock that item yet. Uh, in fact, we have no idea how to do molecular 3D printing. And the second reason is that even if we did have a molecular 3D printer, we still lack the knowledge about exactly what it is that we should build. There's a lot of background information that we also need to learn to figure out the exact shape that would be useful versus useless. And I remember as an undergraduate student in the 1990s, looking at these amazing, beautiful objects and artifacts from nature, and wondering if ever a point in my life people would have the ability to rival the complexity of these devices from nature. And uh, George Bernard Shaw is famous for saying, he who can does, he who cannot teaches. So I thought, OK, I'm, I'm going to try to become a teacher and, uh, and teach people about the wonders of nature, but probably I'll never get around to building such amazing artifacts. Fortunately, I can tell you today that it was just a lack of imagination on my part. I'm going to be telling you about a really wonderful technology called structural DNA nanotechnology that is advancing at great paces and allows us, in some cases, to rival the sophistication, at least of shape, of these wonderful molecular artifacts from nature. Not quite yet the function. We still need to learn more about what shape it is that we should build. And throughout this talk, it's really going to be a celebration of molecular shape, molecular form, so I hope you don't get too caught up in the details and just enjoy the collage of uh, uh, the exploration of shape that is possible weaving things out of DNA. And really, this is, a, if anything, an ode to the founder of DNA nanotechnology, Ned Seaman at NYU. Uh, he basically had the vision for this. He was sitting in the campus pub one day feeling uh, sorry for himself. And then he had this vision of M.C. Escher's flying fish and he had the same thought that would come to any of us over a cup of beer, thinking, why don't I replace flying fish with DNA multi-branch junctions? <laughs> OK, maybe not to everybody, but anyways to him, so we can thank him. And DNA is a very complicated molecule. It has lots of atoms. Uh, and you might think that, well, you need to learn a lot of chemistry, a lot of physics, and do a lot of fancy computational modeling in order to figure out how to wrangle this complicated chemical and have it self-assemble into whatever shape you want. And Ned Seaman's key insight was that, well, even though DNA is a complicated molecule, its behavior can be condensed down to some very simple, very robust rules that you can't find in any other natural material. And there's really just three rules as far as, far as I can see. So one is that the two strands of DNA that come together have to be anti-parallel, things that probably most everybody in the audience already, already knows. So it has to be anti-parallel. They form a double helix 
And we need to know something about the dimensions. So it's about 2.5 nanometers wide. And it's about 3.5 nanometers per turn of the double helix. And finally, the most important rule is something called Watson-Crick complementarity. As most of you know, DNA comes in four letters, A, C, G, and T. And it's, they're very complicated molecules, but really, C wants to pair with G a lot. A wants to pair with T a lot. Those bases are very unhappy if they don't pair up with who they want to. What that means is that we can, uh, another, another thing that's uh, useful is that uh, we've figured out how to chemically synthesize DNA strands with any sequence we want. So if you combine that, that ability of us to synthesize DNA plus the simple rules, that means we can design arbitrary sequences such that if we want two components to link together, we just make sure that those sequences are perfectly compatible, that all the A's pair with T's, all the C's pair with G's. And then if we have unique components, then they'll never get confused. They'll always be able to find the right partner. So if you look very closely here, this domain A2 has sequence GGATTGC, and the complementary sequence will be GCAATCC. So it looks disturbingly simple, but that's how DNA behaves. You, you don't get that kind of behavior from proteins, from lipids, from carbohydrates. DNA is the only material that behaves this simply, which makes it a wonderful substrate for scientists and molecular engineers to play with. Ned Seaman's first aha moment came in 1991, I believe, where he built this thing called a DNA cube, where now each face is a circular strand of DNA that's catenated with four of its neighbors. And uh, when he first submitted this to Scientific Journal, I think it was Science, the reviewer said, that looks cool. What is it good for? Where's the biology? Because the notion of using a natural material like DNA for anything but a biological purpose seemed completely foreign. But culture has changed. And now we have a new generation of molecular scientists who are not afraid and feel very natural about trying to harness molecules for synthetic purposes. I'm, I'm going to fast forward now a couple decades to the method of choice for our group of using DNA nanotechnology. It's called DNA origami, developed by Paul Rodeman at Caltech in 2006. And so the idea is that you start from the 7,000 base genome of the M13 bacteriophage. It's just a convenient source of single-stranded DNA with a known sequence that's non-repetitive. So we know that sequence, and based on that known sequence, we design and then chemically synthesize hundreds of short strands that we call staple strands that are programmed by that specific Watson-Crick pairing to link, to grab two different parts of that long strand and then pinch them together, hence the name staple. And again, remember that every segment of that long scaffold strand is unique along its entire length, which means that you can now describe unique staple strand sequences that will know exactly which two parts of that scaffold to grab and bring together. The end result, after mixing all these strands together, heating them up to 80 degrees Celsius, and then cooling down to room temperature over the course of an hour, is a parallel array of double helices that are linked by these strand crossovers. So for example, we'll have an oligonucleotide staple strand that starts its beginning here. It goes one and a half turns around the scaffold, jumps through a single linkage, and then grabs another part of that gray scaffold. It's Kind of like a log raft, or another analogy I like are those little mats that you use to roll maki sushi. So that's the architecture of DNA origami. Uh, it's an interesting name, DNA origami. Um, 
a lot of people didn't like it. I think the reviewers of Paul Rodman's paper didn't like it because they said, well, origami is three-dimensional, and this is, you just made a two-dimensional object. We can make 3D objects now, so maybe that, that uh, argument isn't so valid. And then some other people might say, well, if you look literally, what does origami mean? In Japanese, it's folding paper. So literally, DNA origami is DNA folding paper, which doesn't make sense, but I think probably nobody's really that bothered about it. It sounds cool, DNA origami. Um, sometimes I think DNA knitting would be a more accurate description, but uh, DNA origami is pretty cool sounding. One example of what Paul Rodman built is this object here he called the disc with three holes. So what he's doing is he's knitting that long staple strand, a scaffold strand with staple strands to raster through this shape. And then uh, this is looking at it using what's called an atomic force microscope. So it's, it basically has this little cantilever that scans across the surface back and forth and then reconstructs the image. And because this is molecular self-assembly, what you're actually doing is you're throwing together trillions of copies of all the components in a little droplet. And then in parallel, you'll, you're self-assembling those trillions of copies of the final object. So within a droplet, you'll have a trillion copies of this. And Paul's advisor at the time, Eric Winfrey, announced this as the most concentrated happiness ever created in the history of humanity. <laughs> One of the um, remarkable implications of this technology is as follows. So this is a rectangle. What he's doing is he's knitting that long scaffold strand into a rectangle. Every staple strand has a different XY location, and it knows where to go because there's a unique sequence-based address for it to go. And so what he, what he did was he synthesized two sets of these strands, one set to form the rectangle, but another set with exactly the same sequence, but with some extra material on the end that would give more contrast in the atomic force microscope. So what that means is, is that every one of these XY positions, he had the choice of either pipetting the strand without the feature or the strand with the feature. And just by repipetting strands from these two sources, he could now create different bitmap patterns. So it's kind of like a little nanoscale display built by self-assembly. So here's an example of something he tried to build. One thing he didn't anticipate is that when you take these double helices and you line them up, then you create a kind of sticky surface and they'll, they'll uh, polymerize with each other and you can make this continuous ribbon. Uh, so when I, I saw this, my, my jaw dropped because nobody had seen something that complicated built using synthetic method before. And it seemed so simple that we didn't, you don't need to know any chemistry, you don't need to know any physics, you just use these simple based complementarity rules, it's literally simple enough that you could, with a pen and paper, you could design one of these objects. Although it's still faster to have a computer help you. Now we have CAD programs, but the fundamentally it's simple. So what we wanted to do in my lab to build off of this was to extend it to three dimensions. So some people complain, why is it three dimensions? And the basic idea is you can take these flat sheets, could you imagine stacking them up to create depth? And it turns out that works. So I'm not going to go through the details, but if we just slide over these strand crossovers due to the helicity of the DNA, that will allow you to change the curvature of the sheet. Uh, if you don't understand that, I'm, I'm not going to go into details. I just want to give you a hint about the process. But anyways, you could program it. Instead to want to be a flat sheet, you could program it to want to curl up. And furthermore, to reinforce that folded up structure, you can route those staple strands through helices between layers and make a really cross-linked structure. And indeed, we found that this process works. These are uh, electron micrographs now of the object that we're trying to build. 
and then we have a simulated thermal, uh, thermal agitation of the object. This is from the CANDU server from uh, Professor Mark Bott at MIT. So we get a good correspondence between the predicted behavior of this design object and what we actually see experimentally under the electron microscope. Here's a gallery of different objects that we're folding. Each of these is folded in a different test tube using the same long M13 scaffold, but a different set of 200 short staple strands. We wanted to see if we could mimic this structure from the sculptor Ken Snelson that he called floating compression. Many of you guys are familiar with this. And so the basic idea here is that you have these beams that are bearing compression, but they're not touching each other directly. Instead, they're connected by these cables that are bearing tension. And if constructed properly, then you actually create a structure with incredible strength to weight and responsiveness so that you can, you can basically globally deform the structure and then when you let go, it bounces back. So could we build such a structure using DNA origami? And without showing you the data, uh, basically we were able to do that. So we designed staple strands that knit this long single strand into three separate struts that don't touch each other directly, but instead are connected by these single-stranded DNAs that it turns out, for physical reasons, actually uh, entropically coil up. So they generate a force. They act like tensile cables. And you, can, you could have objects that are molecular scale tensegrities. And we think that these might be useful uh, for cell biology and for therapeutic purposes. Um, this is another really cool example from my colleague uh, Hendrik Dietz in Munich. And so what he did was he used DNA origami to make these different shapes, but then he designed these interfaces that basically look like plugs and sockets that are held together by quite weak interactions. So the interactions that hold together within one of these blocks are very strong. The interaction between blocks is relatively weak. And what that allowed him to do is to just by changing the uh, energy potential between these two objects of the interaction, he's able to cycle them to come together and fall apart, either by cycling the salt up and down, but more easily by cycling the temperature up and down. So in my presentation, I'm focusing on static structures, like what you could make with a 3D printer. But I think the, the power of being able to make any shape you want implies that you should be able to make dynamic structures as well, because you should be able to fabricate joints to get dynamics. We can also program in responsiveness to these objects, so get them to change their behavior, for example, in response to change in temperature, change in pH, binding different ligands, small molecules. Um, it's not the focus of my talk, but I know many of you guys are wondering, can you make dynamic structures that respond to inputs? And the answer is yes, we can. Uh, this is the latest family of shapes that my, my lab has been obsessing over. We call them barrels. And so again, here we're torturing the DNA and forcing them to bend into circular paths that mechanically they don't really want to do. And the message here is that we can make a family of these with many different diameters. Furthermore, we've figured out how to stack them up using that Watson-Crick complementarity rule. So we basically design sticky ends on the bottom of one that are going to be compatible sticky ends on the top of another. And then we could treat them like big Lego bricks that we link together and stack up to form any height we want. So in this next slide, this is the largest structure that my laboratory has built. So this is work led by Dr. Shelley Wickham when she was a postdoc in the lab. She's now a, um, on the faculty at University of Sydney in Australia. So these guys are, are big by our standards. They're 270 nanometers tall, 
and about 90 nanometers wide. So by comparison, a bacterium is about 1,000 nanometers in diameter. One of our cells might be something like 10,000 nanometers in diameter. And um, you can't really see it here, but remember I showed you that image of Map of the Americas and DNA written on the flat DNA origami? Well, we think we can do the same thing with these, that we have 1,000 pixel sites on the outside and 1,000 on the inside. But we have a problem, which is it gets really hard to see such features, especially when your object is three-dimensional. And so that's something we're struggling with right now. And uh, our method of choice for trying to do this is something called super-resolution microscopy, which is this slightly paradoxical thing where using light microscopy, you can't, typically you can't resolve details below the wavelength of light, which is about 400 nanometers. And these things, we're trying to resolve things that are just a few nanometers apart. But using some tricks, it turns out you can resolve things under, underneath that limit, but it's very slow and very challenging. Uh, ultimately, what we want to do is to take many of these uh, images, average them together in order to reconstruct a high-resolution image. So that's, that's where we are right now. We've actually designed a whole zoo of different structures. Uh, we think folding them we've mastered, but again, imaging right now is the bottleneck in our pipeline. This is what I just showed you. If you can, this is supposed to say Beast Institute along the spine. The diameter is 90 nanometers. The height is 270 nanometers. Okay, so now I'm going to talk a little bit about some explorations into shapes that might be more relevant specifically for therapeutics. So one idea that we wanted to explore was, could we wrap lipid membranes around our structures? So you notice that all of our cells are encapsulated with a lipid membrane. Many viruses are encapsulated by a lipid membrane. That seems to be useful for protecting the contents from destruction and other purposes. So Steve Perot and the group designed a, D a DNA oct wireframe octahedron that's about 50 nanometers in diameter and he designed it with 48 of these single-stranded extensions coming off of a particular sequence. In the separate test tube, he synthesized the Watson-Crick complementary sequence, covalently anchored to a greasy hydrophobic anchor. And then when he added this in excess to saturate these sites in the presence of, you need a detergent to prevent it all from just aggregating, then what you end up with is an object with 48 of these greasy anchors on it. And then there's some magic that happens that we don't really understand exactly how it works, but we know it does. So we mix with these giant liposomes, or it's these big vesicles that are made of membranes, but because there's detergent around, it emulsifies them. And then we have a process of dialysis to remove those detergents, and magically we get an intact liposome wrapping around our structures. So here's the naked octahedra, and these are lipid encapsulated DNA octahedra. Uh, Steve looked at their performance in vivo, and what he found is that when they're encapsulated by this protective lipid layer, they're now resistant to degradation by enzymes that otherwise would chew up the DNA, called nucleases. He also found that they were able to block their uptake into macrophages, which are immune cells that like to clear, clear things away from our blood and, and other biological fluids uh, within our body. And he also looked at these. Uh, he, labeled them with the fluorescent dye and then looked at them after injection into the tail vein of a mouse. So on the left-hand side is a, a negative control of just a, just a simple DNA strand with the fluor on it injected into the tail. And after two hours, it just gets degraded, passes through the kidneys, and ends up in the bladder. This is a control in the middle panel of the octahedron without the lipid casing, casing and it has pretty much the same fate after two hours. 
but the one that's protected by the lipid after two hours still has significant whole body distribution. And overall, it has about a 15-fold longer lifetime in circulation, which can be important for nanomedicine-type applications. You want your drug to, to circulate to be able to find its target and not just immediately get secreted into the bladder. So we think that's a promising start. Um, here's another really interesting work that I, I wanted to stick in here. This is from Hendrik Dietz and Fritz Simmel's group. They wanted to know, could they punch a hole into a lipid layer? So this could be important for nanomedicine in that sometimes you want to kill bad cells by punching holes in them until everything leaks out, or maybe just to deliver things into, the, into cells. And so they had this naive idea that, well, what if they just designed a shape that looked kind of like a needle, and then they stuck some greasy stuff on one face? Maybe it would just want to insert into membranes. And remarkably, they found conditions where they actually could get insertion of these into membranes. Um, now, the performance of these is not very good. They're not very efficient. But I think it's a promising start. Uh, so my lab was, and myself, we were really inspired by real work in nanomedicine uh, from the Wies Institute to try to develop what they call an implantable cancer vaccine. So they take this macroporous scaffold that's about the size of an aspirin tablet, and if they just put a few molecular goodies on the inside of here, then it turns out they can cure cancer, at least in, in mice, which is a good start. And they, they, uh, they've now had a, a phase one clinical trial at Dana-Farber. And so the basic idea is that um, the, the surgeon's going to resect the tumor from the patient, and then now we need some kind of immune response to clean up the tumor that the surgeon was not able to get out of the body. So what you do is you grind up the tumor, and that's a source of basically the scent of the tumor for the immune system to pick up, hunt, and destroy. And then you put that on the inside of here with some other goodies. You implant that subcutaneously. And uh, amazingly, this is extremely efficacious. And I'm not going to go through the details, but we wanted to try to make this better by formulating those molecular ingredients into nanocapsules. And the idea is maybe this nanoformulation might make them uh, more effective. It's just a hypothesis at this point. We don't know if that's true, but that's what we're exploring. So we want to package those tumor antigens and other goodies into these nanoscale thimbles so that they'll specifically get taken up into our immune cells, which will lead to a cascade, leading to immune cells hunting down the tumor and destroying it wherever it finds it in the body. And the basic ideas we're trying to explore are that if we build an object that's about 150 nanometers by 60 nanometers, that maybe it would have some useful properties. This is just to give you an idea of the, the kinds of hypotheses that we're trying to explore right now with this new toy. So one is that if there's a lot of space on the inside here, and we can put in very large cargoes, like uh, messenger RNAs. Some of you guys have heard about CRISPR, Cas9, guide RNAs. There's enough space. We could put ribosomes in there. So we could put a lot of very big cargo and control the amount of each cargo. We think that might be useful, protect it from degradation. Uh, until we release it at the intended site, we could have these programmable interfaces that open up on command only where we want them to. So we don't lose our cargo unnecessarily in the wrong place. And then we're also very interested in this idea that we could make intricate patterns on the outside of these objects. And those patterns might help us to uh, get very specific targeting to cells or induce very useful specific behaviors in those cells. I'm just going to jump through some of these images. Uh, so this is a blueprint of the object. We have CAD software again. 
the point here is just that it is a little bit complicated, but with CAD software, it's manageable. <clears throat> so it's, it's just a 2D representation, but you can kind of see the isomorphism between our blueprint and the object. We make it from five separate DNA origami components, hierarchically link them together, and then we can get our objects. So this, here's a gallery of different capsules. So in fact, we can build these. Right now, we're working on trying to build them to higher yield. We can stuff the insides with not just passive cargo. One thing that we're working on is to try to put active machinery on the inside. So just like a bacterium, when it infects a cell, it doesn't just roll over and play dead. It's actively metabolizing, producing things. So we want to put on the inside of the object, for example, a machine that can synthesize RNA on command called RNA polymerase. So we glue that to the wall next to the template, the sequence that it's going to copy over and over and over again. And it'll just extrude out this yellow RNA strand out the hole. And we might also put some RNA processing enzymes here to chop it into bite-sized uh, sizes or maybe put some modifications on it. So we think that also could be a very interesting model to have not just passive carrying of cargo, but active manufacturing on site of the therapeutic cargo. So the last thing I want to tell you about is, um, so the title of this was Lego style construction. And you might think, well, that was cool, but it didn't really look like origami and it wasn't really Lego. It was more like the snake. Or maybe it was like uh, the Cody. So you have this long linear thing and then you fold up into a 3D shape. Not really Lego. I misled you, you really came here to hear about Lego, so I don't want to disappoint you. So my colleague Peng Yin at the Beast Institute, uh, he was bold and he said, well, we don't need that long scaffold strand. Why don't we just try to build with just a bunch of short components? Maybe that'll work. And uh, we laughed at him and we said, aha, that won't work. But of course we were wrong, he was right. <laughs> and first what he did was he demonstrated, so the basic architecture is these horseshoes. So this is DNA. You have two turns of single-stranded DNA on the top part of the horseshoe, two turns of single-stranded DNA on the bottom one. And the notion is that you program them to link. So if you have domains one, two, three, four, then domain four, the blue horseshoe, is going to interact with domain two of the orange horseshoe. And if you use your imagination, you could represent them as these Lego bricks. And then imagine if you had hundreds of these, you can now tile a two-dimensional surface. And that actually works amazingly, amazingly well just as well as the origami, roughly speaking. And then, um, so I stopped laughing at him and uh, <laughs> felt humbled. And then we decided to collaborate with him. So Yonggang Ke, jointly advised by Peng Yin and myself, said, well, what if we shorten the domain interaction from one full turn down to three quarters of a turn? Well, now these horseshoes are not going to link up in a plane. They're actually going to link up at an angle. And when you have bricks that link up at an angle, you can now tile three-dimensional space. So if you're really interested, you can go buy some Lego bricks and convince yourself that, that's, that this is true. But here's the basic thought experiment, that if you have these bricks that you, in your imagination, you line up into these planes. So here the, the Lego bricks have no interaction with each other. We're just using a thought experiment to jam them together. And then we have these successive layers where we're rotating that, a, a layer of bricks by 90 degrees counterclockwise. So after four layers, we come back in the same orientation. And furthermore, we make these DNA plugs interact with the DNA sockets in a sequence-specific way. So each one of these plugs has a different sequence than all the other plugs. Each of these sockets has a different sequence than all the other sockets. And amazingly, when you do that, that also just works. 
So here's an example. You can start from design space. You imagine this voxel space where each of these 2.5 by 2.5 by 2.5 nanometer volume elements is about eight base pairs of DNA. And so you use your CAD program and chip away at that to make whatever structure you want. And then you can now compile that into the list of the DNA bricks that you either include or exclude from your folding reaction. Because anything that's not there is just going to be a cavity. So here's an example of the CAD program in action. So Yonggang here is going to carve out a channel on a hole in the top half of the canvas, and then a hole at 90 degrees on the bottom half. So maybe you could say it's like molecular sculpting. So you have this CAD program, make some arbitrary shape, feed it to another program that compiles that into the list of strands that you're either going to include in the folding or exclude from the folding. And uh, because Pong is kind of, uh, he's, he's Chinese, and so for him the number 100 is very sacred and holy. Not so holy to the junior investigators who had to do all the work. <laughs> but um, so you can make a 10 by 10 grid. Hopefully you can recognize what they're trying to build here. So these are all just, if you remove some bricks, you could inscribe Chinese characters into these 3D bricks. You could, in, uh, you could inscribe Arabic numerals. Here's some Roman, Roman, uh, Roman al Latin alphabet. These ones uh, have a different representation. So the solid actually represents material that's left out along this row. So they're completely enclosed cavities within the objects. But because in electron microscopy, it's, it's kind of like an x-ray image. We can see through walls. Uh, this one's a little spaceship. I'll, I'll be concluding with a little spaceship. So. And then uh, this represents a massive amount of work. <laughs> but So folding them, so we had uh, pipetting robots to help with the, with the folding. Initially, it was. Uh, in, young interns from Singapore, but then they got replaced with, uh, when they left, the pipetting robots took over. Uh, but it's still a huge amount of effort to do all the imaging that we don't have an automated platform for that yet. So we can see, you can recognize the things that they're trying to build. The numerals, letters, little spaceship. Here's an animation done by uh, Gil McGill at Digizyme, just trying to imagine roughly the dynamics of the structures we're trying to build. And so this is the penultimate slide of the presentation. And we can look at this and either think of it from a glass half full or glass half empty point of view. So the glass half empty view is, well, you started from making smiley faces that were useless. And then now we can make little spaceships that are useless. But I think, uh, I think that's the wrong attitude. The right attitude, in my mind, is that these are benchmarks. So when we try to ben benchmark our CPU, it's not because we're interested in the result of the calculation. It's because we're interested in the performance of the CPU. So being able to build these arbitrary structures is benchmarking our ability to make other useful shapes. Some of those useful shapes might be nanoscale capsules that are very effective at getting therapeutic cargo into the right cell and not, kill, not damaging health, otherwise healthy tissue. Or maybe some shapes might help us to detect extremely low concentrations of biomarkers of disease that currently we're not able to detect. Because oftentimes, that can be the difference between life and death. If we can detect a tumor at the earliest stages, that could be really, really important. And so that raises a related question, which is, where, where is this field going? Well, to be honest with you, the, the therapeutic work, I think there's still a lot of questions that we have to answer, a lot of challenges that we have to overcome. 
So realistically, we're, we're probably not going to have any real revolutionary medicines from this for the next uh, 20 years or so. I mean, there might be some isolated things that are helpful up to that point. But in the meantime, I think we maybe are on the cusp of some really amazing advances in diagnostics or in tools that will help us to manipulate or analyze biomolecules, just the, the research enterprise of teasing out the details of molecular biology. And I think that's something that we're, we're really poised to see some, some of the fruits of this labor uh, coming, coming, coming out. Um, and, I, and I didn't have anything to say. I was mainly focusing on these biological applications. But you could also imagine how ability to put matter anywhere you want in x, y, and z on the nanometer scale and be able to do that in parallel could be useful for many non-biological type applications. So a lot of people envision that for energy type applications, if we could only put matter anywhere we want, maybe we'd make far more efficient, far more durable, far cheaper solar cells or better fuel cells. Or maybe we can make more uh, hardy resistant materials to coat buildings with. So the ability to control shape could be very, very important for uh, human technology. So I'd just like to leave you with that thought. And I'm happy to answer any questions. I'd like to thank uh, workers from, from uh, colleagues, junior colleagues from the lab. So the barrels work that we're really obsessed with, that's really been led by uh, Shelley Wickham here and uh, John Min. So John is now a graduate student over at, uh, at MIT. And uh, with that, uh, I'd like to take your questions. Thank you.